Let us turn, please, in the Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 13, we having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak. Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise us up also by Jesus and shall present us with you. For all things are for your sakes. That the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. We believe... And because we believe, we have to speak. What you have in your heart in these areas of faith is so burning and so compelling and so explosive that you just have to speak. We believe. And the apostle opens this passage by saying we have this ministry and therefore we have received mercy and therefore we faint not and we have therefore renounced the hidden things of dishonesty. And then the apostle tells us that we've done all of these things, all this speaking, all of this activity, all of this renouncing, all of these things we've done because we know that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise us up by Jesus. We stand in the presence of the resurrection day. We stand before a moment of history in which we know that the Lord will come and he who raised up the Lord Jesus He's going to raise us up also and present us together with him. And it's this living communion, this glorious fellowship which we have with Jesus Christ at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the reality of our life. In fact, it is our life. To me, to live is Christ. To die, well, that's a little problem, that's gain. We have no problems with death anymore. We know that he who raised up the Lord Jesus Christ is going to raise us up together by that same Jesus, and he'll present all of us together. And what a glorious, glorious moment that is. And we're all waiting for it. And this has been the hope of the church. And this has been the faith of the believer. And this has been the power in the preachers as they've gone out and besought men in Christ's stead to be reconciled to God. To get right with God. To repent of your sins. And to find in the gospel this message of deliverance. And this message of everlasting life. Announced tonight that I would speak on the subject the day the church died. That was May the 22nd, 1967. The United Presbyterian Church died. So far as the past was concerned, it cut itself off completely. 
the ordination vow? Do you believe the scriptures to be the old and the new of the old and the new testament to be the word of God? The only infallible rule of faith and practice which tied the pulpit to the creed, tied the creed to the church, bound it all up there in one solid unit. That's been cut. It no longer exists. That vow is gone. The vow which says, do you sincerely receive and adopt the confession of faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith Catechisms, as containing the system of doctrine taught in Holy Scriptures. Here's all that the Bible encompasses, all this marvelous revelation. Do you, do you receive it? Do you adopt it? Do you believe it? My answer is yes. And that vow has bound that creed to the pulpit and the pulpit to that creed and the life of the church to that creed as stating what the church confessed to be what God has revealed to us. It's all gone. It's all gone. The church is dead. It's cut itself off from its past. And now it's off here with another program which they have set up for themselves. And which no sooner than they got the Constitution disposed of, the old creeds disposed of, that they were so happy and so, uh, uh, so animated by their victory that they turned immediately into all these various areas where they were going to go and what they've been trying to do, and they didn't stop until way after midnight. And the 179th General Assembly made an abrupt sudden end to all these years of history. All of them. When the General Assembly was first set up right here in Philadelphia, the first thing they did was to bind that church to this Westminster Confession and bind it to the Bible as the infallible Word of God. And this continued that way now all these years. 179 of them until this General Assembly in Portland on May the 22nd says that's finished, that's over, that's ended. We're going to stop that. And I've gone back since I've gotten home and gotten some of the old records of the old church, which are very interesting. I have a book that I picked up in a second-hand bookstore years ago. Never thought it would be of any value to me, but it's turned out to be a very valuable book right now because it's the records of the Presbyterian Church with an index. These are the official records. And uh, it's the records here of the minutes, the actions of the Presbyterian Church from uh, 1706 to 1788. Minutes of the General Presbytery and General Synod, 1706 to 1788. And here they all are through those years. And you get to 1788, which is the last one they have here. And you have the minute recorded uh, calling the General Assembly into session. They had three synods then to meet here in Philadelphia in the Second Presbyterian Church. And so they met in Philadelphia in 1789, organized the General Assembly, adopted the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms, 
which they've had all these years until last week. Last week they laid them aside. And uh, what interests me is that in the official records of the old church, as you go back through these centuries, back to 1706, that in the record here, the minutes of the Presbytery of Philadelphia from the year 1706 to 1717, these are the earliest of years, and the first record that they have, they lost the first page of it. The first page of the thing was lost somehow, and so it doesn't say where they were meeting, what town they were meeting in. But it gives their meeting, October, the second page, gives a second sederant, uh, the second meeting, a second session of this meeting, was October the 27th, 1706. And it doesn't even say where it was meeting. But the next record, which they have, is March the 22nd, 1707, at a meeting of the Presbytery held at Philadelphia. And then they adjourned to meet at Philadelphia. And then they go on, and they were always meeting in Philadelphia. So, so far as the historic records of the Presbyterian Church clear back to 1707, they met in Philadelphia. This is where it was, right here. This is where they had their meeting. It all started right here in Philadelphia. And then it continued as a Presbytery, and it developed into some synods and grew, and they had a New York synod and a Philadelphia, and a Philadelphia synod. And finally, when they came to 1788, 1776, you see, was the Declaration of Independence, 1788, they met here in Philadelphia, and they said, well, we better get our three synods together and form a General Assembly. And so 179 years ago in the Second Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, they met and organized the General Assembly and tied in this Westminster Confession. By the way, you go through here, the Westminster Confession was used all through these Presbyterians. It's the only thing they had. But it's very, very interesting to read these minutes of the early years in this country as these men established the Presbyterian Church. And I was noticing here what they were advising. They ordained this man, Samuel Davis. Apparently, he's the first one that they ordained. And if you'll go down to Cold Springs down here at Cape May and go over there and look on the wall of that little church down there, this fellow Davis was one of the preachers there, the first, about the second or third preacher that preached in the play. And here he was ordained in 1707. And uh, may I read you... Uh, Overtures proposed to the Presbytery and agreed upon for the propagating of the interest of religion. First, that every minister in their respective congregations read and comment upon a chapter of the Bible every Lord's Day, as discretion and circumstances of time and place will admit. So they said, we want every preacher in this presbytery to read from a chapter of the Bible and comment on it every Sunday. And it's his discretion and the general circumstances will depend on what passage he chooses to read and preach from. So that's the first thing that they told. Now the second one, listen to this one. That it be recommended to every minister of the presbytery to set on foot and encourage private Christian society. They didn't have any boards and agencies. They just wanted them 
have private, and this is where you got your private schools. This is where you got your private religious schools. This is where Princeton's University came from. Princeton University was originally a private school set up by some Presbyterians. It was an independent operation when they set it up. So here you are coming over here, and they said, we want our ministers to read the Bible to the people and to expound the Bible to the, at least a whole chapter every Lord's Day. And then to advance the cause that they encourage the people to establish private Christian societies. Now that's the way this thing started. That's the way this thing developed. With the people, the people doing it. The people taking responsibility. The people knowing what they believe. The people deciding that they had to do these things. And that's the sort of a situation that made strong men of conviction and men of faith and men of character and men who helped laid the foundations for this great republic of ours. So when you get the historic connections here, you see that right next door to us, right here in Philadelphia was where they had their first recorded Presbytery meeting. Right here in Philadelphia is where they organized their General Assembly 179 years ago. And now after these years, they've gone out to Portland, beloved, and there in Portland, Oregon, they laid this whole Westminster Confession of Faith back over here in what they call a book of confessions, which is just a historical record of all these different creeds. And they've added a bunch of them in there that the majority of Presbyterians never heard about. And furthermore, they've added some of them in there that even the members of the General Assembly didn't know what it was because it hadn't been printed and nobody had a chance to read the thing before they had, they had voted on it. And so now they have a book of confessions and they have quite a list of them. And the last one in that book is the Confession of 1967. But it's just a record there. It says what we've adopted in 1967. But it has no ordination vows saying that this sets forth the system of doctrine and the church is bound to it. And it's by this standard that we're going to judge the conduct of the church. Beloved, do you know that from now on, after the day they adopted that on May the 22nd, there'll never be another heresy trial in the church? There's no standard for condemning anybody and making him a heretic. That's gone. They'll never be able to get up and say this fellow's a heretic or this fellow isn't a heretic. That standard of evaluation and judgment which we've always had as the basis of our, of our condemnation of unbelief is gone. It just isn't there anymore. And you'll never have any more heresy trials. The only thing you're going to have now is that the General Assembly has the power. The General Assembly determines what's to be done. The General Assembly will be the sole judge. You won't be able to appeal from the General Assembly back over to a creed anymore. There's no connection anymore. That's gone. And it is indeed the death of a church. Now I said I was going to bring you some information tonight, some announcements, and I'm very happy to tell you that at the morning church service over here in Pennsylvania, the United Presbyterian Church of Manoa, which is out on the main line, they had read to them a resolution adopted unanimously by the session of the church, repudiating the whole thing, and I want to read it to you tonight. The session of the United Presbyterian Church of Manoa in Havertown, Pennsylvania at its meeting on May the 26th hereby records its opposition to and repudiation of the action of the General Assembly of the United Presbyterian Church in the USA 
in acceptance of the confession of 1967, May 22, 1967, in Portland, Oregon. It is our unalterable conviction based on the Holy Scriptures that we continue to accept as fully inspired and authoritative that the opinions of the fallible man can have no binding effect on us as a church committed to the proclamation of the book, the everlasting gospel. Therefore, we have no other recourse but to say with the first century apostles, we ought to obey God rather than man. Implicit in this decision is our avowed intention to remain loyal to the doctrinal standards of our church as originally constituted. The Westminster Confession of Faith, together with the larger and shorter catechisms. We continue to regard these standards as containing the system of doctrine taught in the, Holy, uh, taught in the Word of God. We believe this to be thoroughly consistent with our obligation as Presbyterian elders to state the peace, unity, and purity of the church. Such good objectives cannot possibly be achieved by the divisive Confession of 67 which in its central theme, reconciliation, refers to the atoning sacrifice of Christ in terms of theory and mystery, which deny the complete trustworthiness of the Scripture, and in so doing part company with Christ himself, and which uh, spawn the utterly fallacious notion that evangelism is to be equated with social change and the elimination of poverty in our time. We look to the Lord Jesus Christ, the supreme head of the church, for wisdom and direction in our future in the church and solemnly affirm that the dictates of conscience before God require us to take this present course. It is done by unanimous vote and with the understanding that a declaration will be read to the congregation at the morning worship hour, May the 28th, 1967, and that copies of it shall be sent to the stated clerk of the Philadelphia Presbytery and to the newspapers of our city. And then it's signed by the clerk and the officials of the church. So this is the first church that I know of that has repudiated the new confession and refuses to operate under it. Of course, this is only the session that has taken this action, but such action of this ought to be taken by the congregation. And if the congregation meets and approves the action of the session in this matter, Dr. Eugene Carson Blake has a nice problem on his hands. The effect of this is to take them out from under the confession and the new constitution. They have repudiated it. And that's the substance of it. And... I hope that many will follow suit, and then we shall see what we shall see. They will have to take them to court to dispossess them of their property. And that will get this story in the courts of the country. My question is, and what I'm interested in finding out is, will any of the newspapers of the area report this to the people? We shall find out tomorrow morning. Now, out in the West, it's a little different out there. They're much freer. They breathe a freer air out there than we do in Delaware Valley. And they're able to get their stories. And the day the church died, a minister in Seattle, Washington, issued his pronouncement and said he was leaving. He couldn't stay in it. And the newspaper out there put it on the front page of the paper so everybody in town could read about it. Seattle minister quitting over creed. A Seattle minister of the United Presbyterian Church disclosed Tuesday 
that he will leave the denomination because of his opposition to the recently adopted new confession. He is the Reverend W. Lyle Detler, associate pastor of the First Presbyterian Church the past three years, and previously pastor of the Georgetown Church for 12 years. He also formerly served as stated clerk of the Presbytery of Seattle for seven years. He made the following statement to the post-intelligencer. The United Presbyterian Church has now adopted a new theological position. And this will be the official position of every congregation in the denomination. We cannot be congregationalist within the Presbyterian framework. Further, further, all ministers and elders, by their ordination vows to the total theological position of the denomination, it is different with church members, for they become members only on profession of faith in Jesus Christ. For my part, I find myself unable to accept the new theology with all that it involves. But as a minister of the church, I would bear responsibility for it. Specifically, I cannot in honesty ask future newly elected elders the two ordination questions which have been revised. I have a letter from the stated clerk of the General Assembly that the use of these questions will be obligatory. You have to take the new ordination vows. You can't use any other from now on. Well, and then he goes on and quotes the vows of source, and then he simply announces that he's leaving the church. There's your front page story the day after it happened, and he saw that it happened, and he stepped out, and this will undoubtedly raise many questions out in the Seattle area and out in the Pacific Northwest. Now, I'm thankful that I was there the day this church died. And when we arrived in Seattle, Washington, there were three stories in the public press. And one of them reported the statement of a Presbyterian missionary up in Seattle. And then I received the Seattle paper, which had a front page story, I was fired, says Seattle missionary. And the gist of it is that this missionary, the Reverend Talmage Wilson, wrote a book about the new confession. He was opposed to it. And so he had been in the Sudan, and they had to remove from the Sudan because of the government there. And the Board of Foreign Missions wouldn't relocate him anywhere else. And the upshot of it was that the Board of Foreign Missions wouldn't relocate him anywhere else because he didn't like his views. This lovely, broad, inclusive, intolerant church that's so full of brotherhood, they didn't like the views of this particular fella, and so they wouldn't relocate him. In fact, uh, the gentleman in charge of the foreign missionary program, Dr. John Coventry Smith, issued a statement which said the way in which Mr. This Man's name is uh, Talmage Wilson, the way in which he has handled this publicity in his protest is an illustration of the difficulties faced by the commission in considering his reassignment. So if you don't like what they do to you and you make some public statement about it, then you're worse off than you were before. 
And then they proceed to go on to say, the commission welcomes a variety of theological viewpoints within the framework of loyalty to the, to the United Presbyterian Church. Within the framework of loyalty. And so they say this man now has taken himself out of the framework of loyalty. And so he's not going to be permitted to be a missionary and they won't send him out. But oh, the liberals, the modernists, these fellows who have been denying the faith all these years. They've just been filling the mission field with that. But this missionary wrote this little book called A Freeway to Babylon. Now, freeway means a big, broad highway like our expressway. They call them freeways out on the West Coast. But here we call them turnpikes and expressways and a few. But he thought he says a freeway to Babylon. Now, let me just read you what he says about this freeway. He has it illustrated here with some little drawings. I don't know whether he made them or not, but he, he says that here's a diver diving off a, a high dive up here into a swimming pool. And apparently, you look at it, it's got wet paint, and the point is, the pool doesn't have any water in it. It's just been freshly painted and looks like it might have water in it. So this fellow has already left the springboard, and he's on the way down to meet the concrete. And that's the cartoon, that's the drawing. Now, may I read you what this missionary has to say? The next year or so will be a year of fierce discussion about theology in the United Presbyterian Church centered about the so-called Confession of 67. You will be subjected to arguments of all kinds. You will have to listen wearily to theologians who can never say ten words, where, who can never say ten words where 175 will do the job. When you argue on some points, you will find it as satisfying as using a feather pillow as a punching bag. For those who profess or propose this confession will tend to be su surprisingly genial with you. So you don't like our word. That's in quotation. Well, never mind. Put in one of your own. They will say generously. They will concede point after point until you are clearly unsporting to go on arguing at all. So you will be brought at last to a decision, only then to discover that this confession, no matter what its particular words, means the death of all confessions. Vote this one in and you will vote out all, including it. Whatever may be said, this move, if allowed to succeed, will ultimately destroy all creeds. You may wish proof, read on. This is what this book aims to do. But as you get immersed in the mass of detail, never lose sight of the central overriding truth. The confession of 67 is the death knell of Christian confessions and Christian creeds. If written beliefs go, can unwritten beliefs long survive? Well, that's the way he introduced his book. And so he's too strong on this matter. And so the mission will not take him and they will not send him out. And so here he is hanging up in the air. And what's going to happen to him? Now, beloved, this confession of 1967 represents, as I pointed out to you in my message this morning, this statement of Professor Edward Dowie of Princeton who drafted it. It represents what he says, the present situation that exists in the church. We have not been a confessional church for years, he says. They admit it. 
The seminaries have not been teaching the Westminster Confession of Faith. The Board of Christian Education has not been teaching this confession. Here's the church had a confession. Here it is. Seminaries haven't been training the men in it. Board of Education hasn't been teaching it. They haven't been paying attention to it. They've just been going on the way they wanted to and got the whole church now with these other ideas. So the whole church comes and throws out the great standards without too much difficulty. And in this connection, there was delivered at the convention, at the uh, assembly, a statement called the ABCs of a new venture in church education. This report is by C. Ellis Nelson of New York City of Union Seminary. And may I just read you the opening sentence here? The Presbyterian Church startled the religious education establishment in 1947 when the faith and life curriculum was introduced. Probably no event among Protestant denominations was the object of more attention during the late 40s and the late 50s. Because the faith and life curriculum displayed a fresh, creative way to use the Bible seriously, but not literally, in the educational work of the church. Then he goes on down the next paragraph. Through the 1950s, the faith and life curriculum was probably utilized by more different denominations in more different countries than any Protestant school church material. The innovations introduced by this curriculum stimulated other denominations to rethink their educational programs, and now every major denomination in the United States and Canada has created a new curriculum. What faith and life attempted to do has been done and will be remembered by historians of church education as one of the most brilliant successes of the Presbyterian Church. End of quote. So they said, we did it. We started back in 1947. We introduced our faith and life series. And the whole approach was not to take the Bible literally at all, but somehow or other we would take the Bible seriously. So they took it seriously, but not literally. And that brings all this symbolism, all this allegory, all this myth, all this sort of thing, and it's been in the curriculum, the crossroads and the faith and life series. And yet they've had biblical language and biblical terminology, and they've had it to try to deceive the people and change their whole thinking about the Bible so they wouldn't take it literally. Beloved, this Bible is to be taken literally. It is literally and factually the Word of God. Do you mean to say when the Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth, that we take it seriously but not literally? Do you mean to say when the Bible says that our first parents fell into sin and they were tempted of Satan and they ate the forbidden fruit, that we take that seriously, but not literally? Do you mean to say when the Bible says that God led Moses to lead the children of Israel across the, uh, out, of, out of Egyptian bondage and across the Red Sea, on dry ground, we take it seriously, but not literally. 
Do you mean to say that when the Bible says that Elijah called down fire from heaven in the contest with the prophets of Baal, we take it seriously, but not literally. Do you mean to say when the Bible says that Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary? We're very serious about it, but we don't take it literally. Do you mean to say when Jesus Christ stood on the hillside one day and took five loaves and two fishes and he blessed them and he multiplied these five loaves and two fishes until he'd fed a multitude of 5,000 people? Yes, we take it seriously, very seriously, but not literally. Do you mean to say that when the Bible says that Jesus Christ was put on the cross and they crucified him and he cried out, it is finished. And he explained that I came to give my life a ransom for many. We take it seriously, but not literally. Do you mean to say that when the Bible says that on the third day after they put his body in the tomb, that he arose up out of that grave in the same body in which he was crucified. And he walked with his disciples. He met with them. He went through the closed doors. He ate with them. He told them, look here, my hands. Put forth thy finger and touch my side. Well, now, just take it seriously, but don't take it literally. Don't be literal. Do you mean to say that when Jesus went up to the top of the Mount of Olives with his disciples and there they were gathered with him and all of a sudden he just went up so gently and beautifully into the sky and a cloud then came over between them? It's seriously taken, but don't get too literal about that one. You get into trouble for sure. Do you mean to say what the Bible says? He's coming again in the clouds of heaven and when he comes, he's going to speak a word out of his mouth and he alone can speak that little word. And when he speaks that little word, the dead of every age, the dead of all time, who've been washed in his blood will be raised out of the tombs and be gathered into the clouds. Well, I guess you can take that one maybe seriously if you want to, but I doubt whether they take that one seriously even. But certainly not literally. There it is. And they get up there, beloved, out there when they killed the creed and when they turned away from it and says, now we want to tell you what we've been doing since 1947. We want you to understand that we, we were the men that led in all this. We started this thing. We got this new curriculum going. We got this program going. And we've used biblical language and we've been able to use these phrases and, and we presented these ideas to the people. And isn't it amazing that so very few people caught up with us? Oh, there were a few extremists on the radio talking about these things, but you shouldn't pay attention to that. Oh, beloved, the day that church died, it was prepared for its death. The day that church cut itself loose from these great standards of the Westminster Confession to which it was tied right here in Philadelphia 179 years ago, it had been prepared through the weeks and through the months and through these last years for that death. And it died a painless death. It was painless. Nobody got up and asked to have their votes recorded. Nothing like that happened. And it seemed like, beloved, 
that all in the world they were doing was taking off the old grave clothes off this great machine which they have, wrapping them up and throwing them away, and then stepping forth in the newness of their new church with their new creed to go ahead and do their work. And it was all laid out and prepared and planned for them. And then they brought before them that afternoon and that evening this great pronouncement on church and society. 107 pages of their book was just full of these social questions. And then they began to work on them. And one after another, they just went through them. They had a little time discussing this letter that's going to be read to the churches on June the 11th, to which I referred here this morning. But as they went through these resolutions, they came to this one on black power. Black power. And that's Stokely Carmichael and his group, of course, as you know. The way out in the Negro Revolution at the present time, but after they had printed in their blue book the whole statement of these Negro churchmen up in New York, which backs and endorses black power, they came along and in the resolution what they adopted, and beloved, they didn't even take time to read the thing. There was no debate on it. They said, I move it, and I second it. Away it went through. Let me read you this. The 179th General Assembly encourages United Presbyterians to view the phenomenon of black power within the context of the white power we exercise, seeing it both the legacy of a frustrated aspiration and the promise of a newly assertive self-identity. The, the General Assembly wholeheartedly approves and commands to the attention of all United Presbyterians the statement on black power by the National Committee of Negro Churchmen. There it is. There it is. Talk about setting race against race. This does it. It used to be we thought they were in favor of some form of integration. But now they've got on the side of black power being united and strengthened with no integration to it. And this whole thing has been changed in these last two years as a result of the changes that have taken place under the leadership of Stokely Carmichael. And what was interesting about it all, the day I was flying out to the General Assembly, the Chicago Tribune had a front-page story in which J. Edgar Hoover identified Stokely Carmichael as deeply involved in the communist apparatus in this country. And it was a report that J. Edgar Hoover, the chief of the FBI, had made to the House Committee on Financial Affairs, and they had finally released it. Then you get to this whole area of South Africa. They have the usual line, and I want to point this out to you. There are no questions at all. They had a resolution here on South Africa, and they took care of South Africa just before they got to China, or Red China it is. But what is so interesting about this was all the day the church died. Let me read you now what they have to do on South Africa. And this South Africa resolution is identically, it parallels exactly the reports and the statements that you will read in the communist worker. It is there. But at any rate, after they get through denouncing all of South Africa and Rhodesia in particular here, they come along and says, they give the, the details as to what we're supposed to do. We're to put embargo, we're not to trade, we're to boycott banks in the United States that do business in South Africa. We're to do everything in, we, in our power to encourage, if necessary, military intervention in the South African affairs to bring about the destruction of apartheid. 
So on one hand, they have a resolution, black power, which is going to unite the Negroes where they are. On the other hand, they want us to back the United Nations, if necessary, in military action in the Republic of South Africa to eliminate apartheid. Then you get into the China resolution, the one on Red China. It goes all down the line. And let me just read you some of the things. There wasn't a single word about it. Nobody debated it. Nobody raised any questions. They just put the thing through. It was way, way late after 11 o'clock at night when they got around to this part of it. They had spent some time on this letter that I spoke to you about. They debated one or two things in that connection. And then they went on down the road. And I sat there utterly amazed that anything like this could be done without any discussion. But listen to this. The General Assembly now supports the formation of a policy which would see the People's Republic of China in full diplomatic conversation with the other nations of the world, occupying full membership in the United Nations. Supports the formation of a policy which would see the People's Republic of China, that's Red China, in full diplomatic conversation with the other nations of the world, occupying full membership in the United Nations. That's the new confession. That's what they came out with, right off. And then they acknowledge the desirability of many other matters. Look at this. A, that the United States government pursue a policy of openness toward the possibility of diplomatic relations, open communications, international trade, conferences on international arms control, and peaceful uses of atomic energy. This is what they say the United States government should do with Red China. B, that methods be sought by government and other bodies for the possible development of student and faculty exchanges, cultural and atheistic, and I beg your pardon, artistic intercourse, and an international program of information concerning society and the life of the people and their respective nations. Urges the American Christians engaged in a responsible study of the growing body of available information about China and a concerted effort to seek out new resources and new sources, furthermore, exercising caution in forming opinions that may easily lead to disabling fears or unwarranted optimism. They want this whole thing. They want to move right in. We're going to accept Red China. We're going to do everything we can to destroy South South Africa by embargoes and boycotts. But in the case of Red China, no, we're going to do everything we can to get close to them and work with them and develop these contacts. We'll bring over these cultural exchanges. And here come these communists out of Red China coming in here to do the same work that the crowd that's been coming from Moscow has been operating on us. And who did all this? The day the church died. When did it all happen? The day the church died. It all happened that day. I was there and witnessed it. And as they got on in the later evening, it got late, and some men said, it's late, they got up made a motion, we adjourn, or we adjourn to tomorrow. It was second, and the little crowd say yes, the big crowd yell out, no! And then they went on to the next resolution. And somebody got up and said, I move, we adjourn. It's a little motion in a little minority group. Yes, we want. The rest said, no. My, they yelled it out. And they had the church in their hands. They had taken it out from under the ordination vows that it had for 179 years. 
They'd taken it out from under a confession to which they'd been bound and under a Bible that was the infallible rule of faith and practice. And as soon as they got that thing torn out from under these moorings and they had this thing free from the dock to which it had been tied, they laid hands on that thing and they went down the road that night until after midnight passing one resolution after another that goes down the radical leftist line as we're hearing it in the political world today. I will tell you people tonight in my pulpit, just as frankly as I can tell you, that I sat there in that meeting until after midnight, and down in the row ahead of me, we were up in the balcony watching all this thing, and I'd been watching them out there. There was a man and his wife sitting over here on the side. We got to looking at them, and they were shaking their heads and saying, and sighing and carrying on, so it was obvious to us that they weren't very much in favor of the thing. And so when we got ready to go out, I turned down. The lady came over and she shook her head. She says, it looks like a political convention. Beloved, it not only looked like a political convention, it acted like a political convention. That was the great General Assembly, the 179th General Assembly, the evening of the day that the church died. And what you're going to have from now on, all from now on, it's going to be social questions, the revolution, promoting this, different views between extreme liberals, moderate liberals, and some other kind of liberals. That's all you're going to have. There'll never be any doctrinal questions anymore to be debated. They have none. These things won't come up for debate. The whole thing will be social questions, changing the social structure, the United Nations, and of course they came out with a complete endorsement of the United Nations. They did that that night, and they want us to go ahead now and develop the United Nations some kind of world authority which will be able to make its resolutions and enforce its resolutions. And you're going to have a world power with all the three branches of government which we have separated all tied up in the United Nations. And it's spelled out. That's what they want the world to move into. And then when they got into a lot of these domestic things, they had a whole section here on the church and society dealing with these matters of domestic uh, affairs. And may I read you this. The General Assembly supports the principles of the Civil Rights Acts of 1967, including Title IV, to prevent discrimination on account of race, color, religion, or national origin in the purchase, rental, financing, and occupancy of housing throughout the United States of America. And these are these so-called housing things that we're having trouble with now in Pennsylvania and these other states. And here it is. They're coming out and saying the General Assembly supports this. And then they go down to Washington and they lay this on the, on the desk of the various senators and various congressmen, the other people involved. And here you've got this great Presbyterian church in the United States of America coming in with all these programs. The only reason I'm discussing them with you people tonight from this pulpit is that this is what they did the church the day the church died. They adopted that the day the church died. And I thank God from the bottom of my heart that I'm not in that church anymore. I'm glad we're out of it. The only problem is we find ourselves so circumscribed today by our local press. We're so circumscribed by these forces that are about us that we're not able to get our story out. If you go to Seattle, Washington, you can get it out. Here it is. You go to other areas of this country, and when a ministry pulpit gets up and does something like this, and a session does something like this in a church on a national question, it's news. 
and they'll publish it. But they will not publish it in this area where you and I live. And we're up against the, the, the limitations and the restrictions. And the one outlet that we now have in this area, which God has given us, is WXUR, where we're free to talk. And now these same forces, they're the same groups, are moving down in Washington with this complaint and this action to have the voice of WXUR silenced in this area. I told you people that I was going to speak to you tonight about the day the church died. And since that church is gone, I believe it's my duty and it's my responsibility as a servant of Jesus Christ to turn and preach the word and preach the gospel and plead with you people to believe this book and to obey this Savior and to honor this Christ in all that you do. And I want to appeal to you people tonight, any of you who are here, who are mixed up in this apostasy, I appeal to you tonight by the grace and the strength of God to come out and be separate. A dear lady came to me this morning at the close of our service, and she says, Pastor, she says, I'm in this thing. And she says, I want to get out. And she says, I have my children. She had three children with her. And she said, you know, Pastor, I have a problem. She says, my husband is just dead against this. She says, he says he believes, but he's liberal in these things. And she says, Pastor, what should I do? Should I do what my husband says? Or should I do what I think I ought to do? That's what she asked me. You know what I told that dear woman? And I'll tell any woman alive the same thing. I says, woman... You tell that husband of yours that you love him and you're going to be a faithful wife to him. But there's one area in your existence where he doesn't have a right to rule over you. And that's in your relationship to Jesus Christ. He has no right to rule over you and tell you what you should believe or what church you have to belong to. And her eyes just lighted up and she says, yes, I know that. She says, Dr. McIntyre, I'm coming out. You women, put Jesus Christ ahead of that man you're married to. And if you'll put Jesus Christ ahead of that man you're married to, God will take care of the man for you. But if you don't put Jesus Christ ahead of that man, and you think that by your compromises and by your waiting and delaying, that somehow or other your man will get around, he won't come. You can't control your man, lady. You haven't learned that by this time, somebody ought to tell you. You haven't learned that by this time, somebody ought to tell you, some preacher ought to tell you. The only thing that controls that man of yours is the Spirit of God. And you give him a chance to do it. Oh, beloved, Jesus Christ is our Lord. And it's his word that they're trampling underfoot. It's this great system of doctrine that he's given to us. And beloved, the old world is squeezing in on us. The old darkness is coming down about us. And we're moving back to the conditions that we had at the beginning of the Christian movement. When the Christians were a little tiny splinter minority here and there. And yet the power of the gospel and the presence of the Spirit raised up a Christian church out of a pagan world. 
And that same power can preserve our church. And that same power can preserve you. And that same power is the power which God has given us tonight in order that we might bear witness to his word. You know, out there at that General Assembly, they brought in their statistical report. I'll take another minute or two because I'm feeling good tonight. <clears throat> you won't mind it. Oh, beloved, I believe in preaching. They brought in a statistical report out there, and it showed that last year their total increase in membership was a minus 10,000. The great arguments in favor of these uh, unions of very un is that we'll all get together and we'll be bigger and grow, we'll grow faster and everything else. Well, they united with the United Presbyterians and they talk about these unions and they've come up with 10,000 net loss of members. And so one man gets up and I have his article. He said, now we've got to correct this situation, but whatever we do... Let's not go out and try to get the people in by some kind of uh, emotional evangelism. He says, let's not try to do that. He says, let's uh, let the church stand on her own merits that she's going out into the world. We may lose a lot more. Brother, I'd give anything in the world if the whole crowd would walk out on I'd give anything in the world if they'd just walk out in their churches would be old empty dead shells. And let's go out to the halls. Let's go to the homes. Let's go to the barns. Let's do like the people in India. They went out under the shade trees to worship the living and the true God. That's what they did. And I want to appeal to you people, the last place in the world where you can change people tonight is in this area of the church. You'll change political parties. You'll vote Democrat one time. You vote Republican the next time. The next time you don't even vote. Greatest people in the world for changing around. But when it comes to the matter of religion and it comes to the matter of your faith, that's the last place in the world that anybody wants to move. That's the last place in the world that anybody wants to do anything. And the reason for it is that we become so asphyxiated with this general atmosphere of bland and broad brotherhoodism that you hear that nobody anymore believes that there's such a thing as truth. There's such a thing as obeying the living God and honoring this God in what you do and in where you worship and in how you carry on your affairs here on this earth. You know, when I read these minutes about the formation of this first General Assembly, I'm going into that now. You know who was called to preside over the first General Assembly of the United Paradine Church? Witherspoon. A great patriot he was. Witherspoon. And a great preacher he was. And now that we're bringing this hearse, some of you people don't know it, but we've got a black hearse coming to this area now. It's on its way across the country. We got a hearse and put a sign on it, the death of a church, and it called like to cause the street to fall in. You never saw such excitement. We got three Bible Presbyterian preachers bringing a hearse across this country now with these books of mine, the death of a church. And when they get here to Philadelphia, we're going to have big memorial service of some kind. We're going to set this thing up. We're going to have a service. And we'll bring up some of the speeches of Witherspoon. We'll go back and bring up some of the, some of the records of these fellows. And we'll put this thing on the air. We'll fight this thing like we fought Resolution 160. 
we'll have some, we'll have the spirit of revival in this area. And I'm in favor of doing something about it. Would you people go to some kind of a memorial service when the hearse arrives? Would you really go? All right, we'll be there. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank Thee that in these last days, these last days, we can see what happened the day a church died. Lord, we vow before Thee that we shall be faithful. We promise Thee that we shall sustain this ministry by Thy power which worketh in us. Now we pray that other churches may follow the Manoah church example. We pray that this whole thing shall open up to such a way that the papers can't ignore it. The papers can't suppress it. Lord, may it be possible. For Christ's sake, amen.